Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be, them, will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the one who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. The one who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me in the way this, away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as, long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia or 2,200 kilometers in length and as wide and as long, as high as it was long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits or 65 meters thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made up of jasper, the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The sun does not need 
The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What a wonderful word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, reading Revelation 21 is a little bit like coming out of a dark cave into bright sunlight. It's a little like seeing the sunshine again after days and days of clouds and mist and rain. That's because prior to chapter 21 are chapters about judgment. So I encourage you to go for a moment in your Bibles. Let's go to chapter 4 for a minute. And walk with me through some of the chapters that are here, and you'll see how dark this gets. Already beginning in chapter 4 of this final book of the Bible, we get a picture of a heavenly throne room and of creatures. We get images of power and glory and majesty, which would make mere mortals melt in fear. And that throne room scene is followed by the opening of seven seals in Revelation 6. Look at Revelation 6. Just keep kind of moving through there. And the tribulation and the judgment that will be unleashed on the day of the Lord. The opening of the seven seals is followed by the blowing of the seven trumpets, each bringing with them a series of woes as chapter 8 and 9 speak of it. And all of that is followed in chapters 12 and 13 with the revealing of the unholy trinity, the dragon and the henchman, the two beasts. And then there's chapters 15 and 16 that speak about seven dreadful plagues that poured forth from the bowls of God's wrath. And all of that is followed by chapters of horrific judgment and violence all wrought by the righteous judge Jesus Christ himself. And then last Sunday morning, Pastor Amanda took us to Revelation 20 and the throne room of heaven and the picture of books being opened in the presence of a judge. And there's reference to a lake of fire. It's enough to make you shake in your boots when you read all of this. Now, much of the darkness that one reads about in Revelation comes because of the reality of the prince of darkness who set himself up against the coming of the kingdom of heaven. The darkness in life faced by the Christians in Rome to which this letter was written and many Christians in other nations since is the result of the fall into sin. The darkness is the result of the world falling for the lies of the prince of darkness and bowing before him. It's a dark world we live in. The Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah would talk about the people walking in darkness. And the concept of people walking in darkness brings with it pictures of people stumbling about in the dark can't see anything, unable to find their way. They're totally lost. 
And since the fall into sin, people are pictured as hopeless and helpless to do anything about their condition. The Bible sees fallen humanity as cut off from God, separated, as it were, by an ocean, with no way back unless God does something about it. What becomes clear from Revelation is that God, who made everything perfect and beautiful in the first place, has little use for all that is unholy and for all that is dark. And so he does something about it. Henceforth, the picturesque language of Revelation, language that speaks powerfully of judgment and justice and the Lord having his way with what he made in the first place. The point is, when the time is complete, the number seven, you saw a few of those, and that stands, all that stands in the way of the return of Christ, all that stands opposed to the coming of the kingdom in all of its fullness, all of that that stands away will be swept aside and will be dealt with as God sees fit. This is apocalyptic writing with dark and horrible imagery. What we have in Revelation are pictures of the day of the Lord, pictures of human history with all of its misery and its inevitable end. It's enough to evoke from God's people the prayer that we read in chapter 22. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, please. <clears throat> and you know, we can pray such a prayer. We can pray such an Advent prayer because for God's people, the stories of Revelation are not to make us fearful. But these stories speak volumes of comfort. And this is the overarching message of the book of Revelation. God is on the throne. And he will shine and he will rule and he will do what is right. And he will make all things right. Evil, darkness, death, that whole dominion will be defeated. For into such a fallen, dark, old, tired, headed for hell world, God sent his only begotten son, Jesus. Not just a son. But the very light of the world, the renewer of creation, the very one who bridges the gap between the Father and his people, Jesus Christ brings light. We're going to hear about, more about that tonight. Life and newness to life through his sacrifice on the cross and through his victory over the grave. Jesus drives the shadows of sin and darkness and evil away. Jesus is the victor. He is the lamb upon the throne. It's Jesus who provides a future for his people. It's Jesus who provides hope for his children so that they can even die in peace. My comfort in life and in death is knowing that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who will come and who will make the things we read about in Revelation 21 a reality. Revelation 21 is a bright, 
hope-filled chapter of the Bible, a wonderful chapter for Advent. Now, for some of us, hearing the words of Revelation 21, verse 1 5, perhaps only brings back some painful memories. Because these are the verses that are often read at the graveside of someone who's about to be buried. I personally have come to connect this passage with funerals. And so I read it at the graveside when we are burying someone. And that's okay. For what better time than in the midst of raging sorrow to hear about the hope, the promises which God gives his people through the reconciling work of Jesus. And so while we are filled with sorrow because someone we loved or someone we knew well has died, while we're thinking of the fact that we will miss them and there will be an empty spot in our lives, while we're thinking about the fact that we'll never be able to speak to them again on this earth, and while we're thinking about the fact that the person is dead and it all seems so final, and while it may be the case that we're not even thinking anything because we're so numb or don't really know what to think, it's then through the words of Scripture that Jesus, as it were, takes our tear-stricken faces in, our hand, in his hands and makes us lift up our gaze from the downward gaze to one which is filled with hope, more hope than we've had for a long time. While we're focused on our loss and on our pain, the good shepherd comes along to us in the Advent season and takes our chin in his hands and lifts our faces from the ground and from all the misery that's around us and has us look at him and has us look at a broader picture in life. So at the funeral of a loved one, especially one who dies in the Lord, we are consoled with pictures of restoration and redemption and eternity and heavenly worship so glorious we can't even imagine what it would be like. And likewise, in this Advent season, as we anticipate the celebrating the birth of Jesus, we get a broader picture because we're looking way beyond Jesus coming in the first place. We're looking to his coming again. We're looking to all things being made new, because they will be. God has promised it. You can stake your life on it. A number of things are striking about chapter 21, if you have it open before you. The first thing we note is that God loved his creation. Verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There's something wonderful about the picture being presented here. It would appear the Lord's not going to annihilate everything that presently exists and start all over again. When the Bible says that John saw a new heaven and a new earth, it ought to be understood that John did not see a universe emerge that was totally other than the present one. So that he looked at it and he said, I don't even recognize it. I don't even know what that is. What is that? That's weird. Not at all. Rather, that which is to come, that which will be, is going to be in continuity with what we have now. God, when he first made it at creation, he declared it all to be good. One author described it this way, quote, The world into which we shall enter in the perusia of Christ, in the coming again of Christ, 
is therefore not another world. It's this world, this heaven, this earth, both, however, passed away and renewed. It's these forests, these fields, these cities, these streets, these people that will be the scene of redemption. At present, they are battlefields full of strife and sorrow of the not yet accomplished consummation. But then they're going to be fields of victory, fields of harvest, where out of seed that was sown with tears, the everlasting sheaves will be reaped and brought home, unquote. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way before. Contrary to what many people seem to believe, it would believe it would appear that the Lord doesn't save his people by snatching them out of this world and then placing them in some unreal spirit world in the wild blue yonder. That's not going to happen. We heard the same sort of truth earlier this month when Pastor Amanda preached about the passage from 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the body, a very real solid body with which we are going to be resurrected. And we're going to live on a very real, solid earth. Jesus came to redeem the entire creation from the effects of sin. And when that great and final day comes, God will cleanse all things in the fire of judgment and transform all things for his grand new order. The old order, that is, the things that we have around us here, and now will not necessarily disappear so that the final result will be totally different. Instead, the old order or things we have now, as we have them now, will be purged, cleansed, scrubbed, perfected, gone through the smelter. All things will be made new and we will physically inhabit a scrubbed, cleansed, physical reality which is precisely why Reformed people have always held to the notion that what we do today has not only value for today, but for all eternity. That's the first thing we notice. God loved his creation and will remake it. The second thing strikes us when we read Revelation 21 is there's going to be an incredible intimacy between God and his people. Incredible intimacy. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. A city, Jerusalem, is referred to as a symbol of the gathering place of God's people. Of course, Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel throughout the Old Testament. It was there that the king had his palace. It was there that the temple found its place. It was the center, the most important city for God's people. And now that all things are going to be made new once again, there's a reference to Jerusalem again, of course. But not now as the center of a political state, not the center of a country that we know as Israel, but the center of the entire people of God. The new Israel, the new Jerusalem is a picture for the time when the Lord will gather his people together and dwell with them for all eternity. And therefore, the note in verse 12 of the 12 tribes of Israel, all 12 tribes are there. It's a picture of completeness. God's people will be complete. 
And Jerusalem is used as a symbol of the bride prepared and adorned for her husband. This gets into marriage and marriage relationships, Christian. When you talk about a bride and a groom, you talk about an intimate relationship. In this case, a perfect relationship in Revelation. And because of its perfection and holiness, it will be a delight to all peoples, and God will delight in his people because they will serve him fully and perfectly, and the delight will be mutual. The old sinful ways will no longer be remembered. All the old miserable things we did and involved ourselves in will not be remembered. Now they may still embarrass us and cause us to weep, but not then. Infant mortality will be a thing of the past. Death will not be there. Disease, tears, sighs, depression, loneliness, broken relationships, all the things that cause us so much pain in this world will not exist. I can't wait. The people of the Lord, those saved by grace, will work in this paradise regained as Adam and Eve worked in the first paradise. We heard a little of that from Isaiah 65. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. That was wonderful news to Israel, for it meant the day was coming. There would be no more robberies or evictions at the hands of their enemies. The day was coming, God promised, when no longer would their produce be destroyed as foreign armies tended to do in times of invasion. Rather, the day was coming when the people's work would be blessed and yield fruit abundantly. The relationship between God and his people would be an intimate one with the Lord providing all that was needed for life. This is the perfect marriage, the perfect couple described in these verses. Can you imagine? And then can you imagine that the Apostle Paul writes that our marriages in some mysterious way are supposed to reflect the relationship of Jesus and his church. Scary thing to think about. The beautiful picture continues in the parallel passage of Isaiah 65. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, whereas now the wolf would eat the lamb. The lion will not necessarily kill for its food, but eat straw like the ox. In other words, all cruelty, hurt, and fear will disappear from the new Jerusalem. Perfect love drives out fear, says the New Testament. There will be nothing offensive in the new city. Verse 8 and 27 clearly state that all impurity, all sinfulness will be banished and not welcomed in the new Jerusalem. All the brokenness caused by sin will be healed and shalom will reign over the earth. All God's people will live in perfect fellowship with the Lord and with each other, the law will be perfectly fulfilled. Amazing. As for the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21, that talk of streets of gold and all sorts of precious stones used to describe the place, please note that such descriptions are only pictures trying to use human terms to explain something so grandiose, so wonderful. There are no human words or equivalents to describe what it will be like, and so you go to the precious stones and you do the most precious things that people have, and you go, well, it'll be something like that. Tons of it. 
How do you describe perfection? The third thing that's striking about Revelation 21, which also ties in very closely with the intimacy, intimacy spoken of a moment ago, is that there will be no need for churches or temples in the New Jerusalem. Verse 22. It struck John that he saw no temple in the New Jerusalem. That's different from what any, what anything that he or any Jew had ever experienced because the temple was extremely important to them. It was the symbol and the place of God's presence among his people. All down through the Old Testament, we hear the importance of the temple and how terrible it was for people to be exiled from Israel. Exile from Israel meant, to the Jew at least, exile from the presence of God himself. The temple was that important. However, with the death of Jesus, things changed. That temple became obsolete. Now God dwells in the hearts of his people, in our hearts, and we're referred to as living stones in a spiritual temple. In the new Jerusalem, there will be an intimacy between God and his people which they never experienced before, but which has been promised all along since the day the Lord put his plan of salvation into effect. John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is among the people, and he will live with them. They'll be his people, and God himself will be their God. That's covenant language that we hear repeatedly throughout the Bible. God has a gracious relationship with his people throughout history, but now he takes them fully to himself and he dwells in their midst. Now, all of this is more than the heart could ever imagine. One writer said, Jesus did not save us in order to give us less of a deal. He came to give us life, more abundant life. So when we think about the intimacy that will be between God and his people, we also note from, and read from verse 1 that there's no longer any sea S-E-A, sea, oceans, water. As to whether or not there will no longer be any actual sea on the new earth, that's merely conjecture. For if we hold that this new earth will be this earth, the new earth will be this earth recreated, then why wouldn't there be a sea on the new earth? After all, the sea was created by the Lord and also declared to be good, along with the animals in it. But the reference here to the sea has, uh, being gone has to do with what the sea represents, namely separation, chaos, the place from which the beasts who blasphemed God and made war on the saints came, according to Revelation 13. Isaiah compared wickedness to the tossing of the sea, which does not seem to rest. The reference to the sea seems to be one that talks about evil and restlessness and separation from God. On the new earth, that won't be anymore. And yet one more striking thing about Revelation 21 and its description of the new Jerusalem. There will be no night there, verse 25. No night, and so the gates will be open. In the New Jerusalem, there will be no, no more night, no more shadows, no more danger. Isaiah already prophesied about that in Isaiah 60, 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, 
nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. We sang those words. Revelation 21, verse 30 to verse 23 speaks about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. An important ingredient in all things being made new, all things being recreated, is that shadows will vanish. Nothing will be hidden anymore. Darkness, in the ultimate sense, is a symbol in the Bible of existence apart from the presence of God. Jesus described the future without him as being one of utter darkness, and he called Satan's actions the works of darkness. And so in a couple of, a couple of parables, for example, we, the situation is that the disobedient are thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, they'll be separated from the presence of God and of his grace. That's the ultimate punishment. Oh, now indeed we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face, writes the apostle. Remember that the book of Revelation is a book of pictures. And so when you read a description of all things being made new, as in Revelation 21, it is expressed as the opposite of what we find ruined in this present life. On the new earth, no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The Lord will wipe away all the tears from our faces, a wonderful picture of love and tenderness. No more temple, no more having to go someplace to meet the Lord. The Lord will walk with us and talk with us every day. No more separation from God, no sea, rather an intimate marriage relationship. No more right, night, but rather only a dwelling in the wonder of His grace. There will be no more shadows, unbelief, doubt, struggling to find God's way. No more stumbling about not knowing God's will or the truth. As Jeremiah prophesied, no longer will a person teach their neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Our whole beings will be focused on and filled with his glory. The struggle between God and Satan will be over. The Lamb will reign victoriously. What a wonderful chapter of Revelation. Describing a day beyond our wildest imaginations. And yet a day that is sure to come because of Jesus' birth. And now our prayer is, come again, Lord Jesus Come quickly and usher in that kingdom in all its fullness. Amen. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come again. What a picture. What a glorious picture of the new creation. Help us, Lord, to live in such a way that we know that what we do today and how we reflect you and how we love you will carry on onto the new earth.
Well, Lord, it's hard for us to understand that. But such is your wonderful gospel message. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.